Over the past 25 years, the charter school movement has grown from a single school in Minnesota to more than 7,000 across 43 states in the nation's capital. A key principle behind this expansion has been diversity, both in the kinds of schools available to families and in the background, culture, and race of the people who lead them. But in recent years, that emphasis has often taken a backseat, as policymakers and funders have focused on expanding school models with a track record of success and the capital and connections needed to get a school off to a good start. Is there still a place in the charter school movement for educators who just want to start a single school in their own community? If not, what are the implications for the diversity of the schools that comprise the charter sector and their leaders? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and joining me today to discuss those questions is Darrell Bradford, executive vice president of 50CAN, a national nonprofit that advocates for equal opportunity in K-12 education. Darrell's also the author of the new article, Strengthening the Roots of the Charter School Movement, which will appear in the summer 2018 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Darrell, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Marty. I really appreciate it. So you write in the article that the single-site school and an environment that supports its creation and maintenance are essential if we are to achieve a successful and responsive mix of school options for families. Why is that the case? So um, I sort of came to this, and, and again, I, I really want to thank you guys for giving me a chance to write uh, about these ideas. Um, I sort of came to this from a, 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 different, um, a different place. Uh, so the or two different places. The first one is just like um, chartering for me as like a power of governance has always been about doing two things or trying to do two things. One was create a bunch of schools that could help us close, you know, pernicious achievement gaps and provide, you know, choices for families who, who normally didn't have them. And like, you know, my work that's been largely in the Northeast and the history of, you know, sort of charter schools in Newark and New York City kind of uh, reflect that. The other one was, um, was sort of less talked about, which is that chartering is also about, it's not necessarily about innovation, it's about difference, right? It, it was supposed to be a, a power that helped us bring kinds of schools into existence that could not themselves, like, be fledged from, you know, traditional um, elected school boards. And I, I started to think about these, these two things really um, in the kind of, like, wake of increased charter, you know, attacks. Um, around, like, the NAACP moratorium and uh, kind of, like, Black Lives Matter and those sorts of things, and the public pressure on them um, after the election, given that, you know, the president said he, he supported them. Um, and I think last year's Ednex poll that showed that um, charter support had, had decreased significantly. And, um, you know, like, you can't sustain any political movement if it, if it, doesn't, if it doesn't grow. Um, and so I like backed into this question of like, you know, we have these CMOs that are largely concentrated in specific areas. They have some political support, but they don't have like broad political support because not enough people attend them. What should we be doing? Um, and the, the single site, you know, charter school, which is like the, the two turntables and a microphone of, of education change, like just somebody who has a, a dream who wants to do something, you know, really locally feels like, has felt like for a long time, it has not really been at the center of the discussion of how we scale our movement in a way that makes it, um, you know, diverse and meets the original principles of, like, the chartering power, 
but that also makes charter schools sustainable in a way that we're not, you know, at the whims of large swings of public opinion from, from year to year, depending on who's in charge or who isn't. So in what ways would you say that the environment right now is not hospitable or less hospitable than it might be to mom and pop charters? After all, they they do still represent more than half of the sector. I believe the number you cite from the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools is 55%. So uh, they're out there. What what's what's getting in the way? Yeah. So the um, so even though they still represent the uh, the majority of schools, they are the slower growing of the sectors. If you say mom and mom and pop single sites versus CMOs or um, uh, or or EMOs, and uh, particularly in the in the Northeast, which is like what helps me contextualize a lot of this, because I think you know when people are are thinking modern charter policy, they're not thinking, you know, the expeditionary learning school in the southwest corner of Colorado. They're thinking about Success Academy, you know, where, where I'm a, uh, like a, a board member. Um, and because when you say charter school, for many people, and this is always important to remember, almost every American has, ne- like, has not been into a charter school. Uh, like for uh, we talk about chartering like it's a car. Like everyone knows what a car is, and even if you don't drive, everyone has been in, in a car. And what's um, uh, the reality is that the majority of Americans have have never been in a charter school and and don't have a, a, a kid at one. So um, what has happened is that the the, the CMO sort of vision, uh, highly controlled, tightly controlled. Um, with, uh, I, I will say, uh, strong structure, um, which some people would, would call uh, di- over-the-top discipline, um, and a focus on, uh, on producing results via test scores, you know, which I support, um, has become the shorthand for what a charter school is in America. Um, and a lot of people, in particular on a pro- progressive left, don't like that. For, for myriad reasons, some political, some some cultural, some just about you know personal taste, and that environment where even if it's not real, but um, people imagine that all we're producing is uh, sort of like highly regulated, highly structured CMOs, doesn't help us um, uh, uh, foster an environment politically again where you can make lots of different types of schools. And it also doesn't help us from, like, a regulatory standpoint, uh, focus resources and stuff on the people who want to take a bet on a single school. That might be, you know, uh, uh, Montessori or project-based or any of these other things that, you know, people don't believe charter schools are but actually are at the same time. So part of it's about the public image of charters, and I hear you saying that people are thinking about the no-excuses model as a synonym for charters when, in reality— that's that's not the case, but yep. part of it is that it does seem that there's been active efforts on the part of policymakers and funders that are pushing more of the charter growth towards replicating that model in a way that is a real phenomenon, not just a matter of perceptions. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's uh, I think that's right on. There are two things going on there. So uh, on the one hand. Well, starting schools is a, is a is a risky enterprise, right? And to the extent that someone has has built something 
that is already out there. It is, and 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 that has sort of the the capacity to grow large fast. It's an easier bet to get on that than to say, well, here's one school that may only ever want to be one school. Does that give me the same sort of philanthropic bang for my buck? And I think you've seen, you know, philanthropy, not just philanthropy, but policymakers too, get behind um, uh, reform solutions. You can say, like, you know, Teacher America, I would say, is like an interesting parallel to this in the uh, teacher cert, you know, space. Like, yeah, there are lots of ways to certify teachers, but Teacher, teacher America seemed like the one that could be scaled fastest. And so lots of policymakers decided they wanted to support that, and lots of philanthropists decided they wanted to support that. And that is essentially what has happened over time um, with the chartering movement. So you, you see, an, you have seen an alignment from large-scale philanthropy around CMOs that are able to scale, you know, most quickly uh, and to hire people most quickly, either because they have, you know, the people in charge of them have strong context of philanthropy and or um, their specific skill that allows them to scale up and, and manage well. Like, I, I mean, I think Eva Moskowitz is actually like a fantastic example of this, even though she's like a unicorn in this discussion. You know, here's a person who has enormous political talents, so understands the inside game of how public finance and things work, um, is a fabulous fundraiser, and so captures the imagination of, uh, of philanthropists and people, you know, on both the left and the right, um, and is a superlative educator. So um, even though I would not say, I would not describe uh, uh, success as no excuses, although I do think it is high structure, um, the, re the results are, are phenomenal for, uh, for any kid, but very specifically for low-income African-American and Hispanic kids who are the, the bulk of the kids in that work. Um, serves and so so that's just easier uh, to to get behind than one person who wants to start a school in in Brownsville, which you know is historically one of the lowest performing districts in in New York City and you know really America uh, if you look at it over, over time, um, who doesn't have connections in philanthropy, you know who who doesn't have uh, uh, all of the history that a person like uh, Eva Moskowitz or Dacia Toll. Um, you know, have and and when you're a philanthropist and you're thinking about ROI or you're a policymaker and you're thinking about how many how many friends you're going to make from from making a political decision, you know, the single site school doesn't look as attractive. The math isn't as attractive as backing a big CMO. In examining the challenges you were just mentioning to launching single site schools, you note that many of those challenges may also contribute to the relative paucity of charter schools that are led by people of color. How are those two issues related in your mind? Yeah, so so my uh, approach to this is, is sort of um, uh, is sort of different. Uh, it's 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 evolved. So um, I do believe that uh, you know all kinds of diversity, but among all kinds of diversity, uh, uh, ethnic diversity, um, makes our movement uh, richer and politically safer because, like. Diverse movements are politically safer, <laughs> and and because they're diverse, they can be politically larger. And so the the math um, is the math instinctively says a more diverse charter movement in terms of ideology type and the people who are in it and lead it is just 
intrinsically a safer one. Um, and I, I know there are lots of other people who come to um, to the the discussion about why we need diverse leaders um, from a different lane. I think that that the the political realities lane is probably the one that makes the the case um, most clearly and easily. Um, but like as a person who you know, I, I work in education advocacy. I'm African American. I have to raise money. Um, it's, it's like, and I, I went to fancy schools, and it's and it's hard. <laughs> it's, like I'm I'm connected, and and it's hard. Uh, and that uh, uh, the 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 ability to talk to funders in a way that they understand um, the connections with people who, um, who have been successful at starting schools before or successful advocates, um, the, uh, the policy history and interaction with people in Albany or whatever your state capital are, um, the track record of having tried something, been successful or failed, and, and tried again, like this kind of, of history is, um, is very unique for um, people of color who are trying to start, you know, single sites in places that had not caught the eye of philanthropy or or policymakers, and you can, you don't just learn it. <laughs> it doesn't just like fall out of the sky. You know, at the risk of sounding um, flip. You know, I went to prep school and two Ivy League schools. Like that means it costs, you know, I don't know, five hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is for me to learn how to talk to a funder at a national foundation. And that sort of um, uh, exposure is is just not out there. If you are, you know, uh, 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 a, a teacher um, from, you know, you 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 got your your cert at uh, at at SUNY, you know, the, the State University of New York, um, and you want to start a charter school in Harlem for kids who are in transitional housing, like you are very likely not going to be able to get the same people. That uh, you know the head of idea can get uh, on on the phone, and that there is a chilling effect on anything you do because of that. It's just um, uh, reality. You're probably also going to struggle if you target some of those situations that you were just talking about in demonstrating academic success early on, at least by traditional metrics. And one of the issues you raise in the article is whether an over-reliance on test scores as a measure of charter school quality may be sort of reinforcing some of the challenges that you were just describing. Um, how do we navigate that? Because, you know, you, you also acknowledge that you support the strong focus on measured achievement as a way of uh, really driving success and, and producing schools that are gap closers. How do we find the right balance? Yeah, so, so this, it, it's, it's funny, like in the, in the chartering question, I think you probably have the best um, like publicly financed example of the tension between how you define good and how you measure what good is. Uh, and certainly I think we've seen similar um, uh, tension around measurement for private schools participating in, in uh, state-funded choice programs recently that, that um, mirrors this, but it's just, it's just not as sweeping as the discussion about, char about charter stuff. Um, so the standards movement, I, I believe, and I think a lot of people believe, you know, though imperfect, 
changed the discussion so profoundly about the achievement of low-income kids that um, you couldn't ignore what happened afterwards. And so though some folks might say, you know, like charter schools and teacher prep or a bunch of other things are, the, the, are more impactful, I would say that no charter school it, on its own ever created the conditions for us to, you know, go down any of these paths in the way that being able to look at standardized assessment scores uh, did, you know, and they are imperfect, um, but I, I still think they're vital. Um, that said, uh, like my old boss used to say to me, he's an engineer, um, you know, I love physics in the way that an English major loves physics, and uh, the uncertainty principle about uh, how you measure uh, the speed or location of an electron um, is instructive, because they say you can't do both with 100% accurate at the same time. You can know where something is or how fast it's going. Um, but my boss used to say, the other way to interpret that is the act of trying to measure something changes it. And I do believe, you know, some people for ill, um, some people on purpose for ill, lots of folks were good, had their behavior changed by, um, by standardized test scores, right, and the pursuit of excellence on those. And in doing so, it also narrowed our definition of what good is and what success is. So if a school is getting amazing results on standardized test scores, I would, I would say that that is one awesome type of success, but it is the a type of success that is, that is oversampled in, the, in chartering right now. Um, and note, I'm not saying throw it away. Um, what, I, what I do think is that as long as we have a, uh, uh, a weighted view toward charter success that is about demonstrating excellence on standardized test scores, then we are going to have a, a view toward established CMOs that, that actually get those kinds of test scores. Um, if you are a leader of color and you want to take on, uh, you know, a, a school, a project for kids that are like not just poor but, you know, homeless or, uh, or, or in transitional housing or something like that, I mean, like kids, kids who are really getting the short end of the stick, it's very likely that even though you might do better, you're probably not going to be knocking it out of the park on standardized assessments in, in year three. Um, you might not be doing it in year five. You could be doing it in year seven. But because you're not doing it in year three, it is highly unlikely you will do it in year seven because we built a, a framework around success that is, you know, you get five years, you demonstrate progress on standardized test scores largely, not entirely, but largely. Um, and if you take, you know, if your mission is to serve the, a, an extremely difficult population of kids, it is unlikely or less likely, rather, that you are going to have success that looks like what our flagship, you know, sort of charter operations have. Um, and it's just a real, it's a real gap. Like, uh, we have to be able to, just like we had growth, you know, as a measure on teacher eval, where we were saying we want to see how kids are doing relative to how kids like them are doing. Um, we, we don't have a similar sort of flexibility in how we authorize and how we, you know, decide to reauthorize schools that builds in the same sort of uh, uh, context at a, at a large scale. And it is, you know, it's partly responsible for why our movement looks the way it looks now. So we're about out of time, but I want to close by asking you to get practical or as practical as you're willing to get. And 
go back to this tension within the goals of the charter movement that you highlighted at the start of our conversation. So you said that from the outset, chartering has been about trying to produce schools that are really closing gaps in measured achievement dramatically and quickly, but it's also been about increasing the variety of schooling options available to all American families. And one way to read your article is saying that we've sort of gotten the balance between those two goals, which can be in tension with one another, out of whack. We focus too much on the former rather than the latter. If we're trying to renew emphasis on this latter goal of increasing variety, diversity of schooling options, what needs to change? Who needs to change their behavior and how? So the, the first thing I want to do is thank you for that excellent summary of the article, because I'm going to use that. Um, <laughs> I do think there are uh, two, uh, it's sort of like two tracks you want to go down. Um, the first one, and just to kind of harken back to what I, I talked about earlier, is that we have to get to a place where we are more open about what good is, um, and that, you know, is going to fall to, um, to, the, to the authorizing class uh, uh, at this point. And so maybe one of the things we could do very specifically is um, what in my organization we would call a social movement is like a, a broad engagement campaign of families around the kinds of schools they would want to, uh, to, you know, to see and then figure out ways to more strategically organize them in the creation of new schools um, paired with authorizers instead of sort of, instead of, sort of like, um, like cold calling authorizers, as it were, with a, um, with a good idea. And then, you know, similarly, like authorizers need to be more, um, more open to the fact that the people who are coming to you aren't, you know, in the future are not always going to be from networks. They're not always going to be deeply plugged in, um, and they may need more help than other folks who, who have uh, who've been there in the past. So that's uh, the one thing. And that's like a disposition around, um, around how we should uh, approach the future. On the other side, um, specifically for like the, the single-site work and the leader of color work, I, I think there's just some real practical gaps that you see that we could address. So um, one is there is a translation function that needs to happen between folks in the community and philanthropy um, because like sometimes a person who has not you know, doesn't doesn't deal with philanthropy or big philanthropy or small philanthropy or any fee, um, doesn't know how to put their vision into the the language of uh, proposals that go that aren't successful, um, and that alone could go like a really long way. So that's the uh, the first thing. The second thing I would say is you know people talk, talk pipeline, but like leadership matters, um, and we do need to be more. I hate to use this ad speak, but um, intentional about the cultivation of people who want to start charter schools, um, all kinds of people. But very specifically, I think, you know, there are big networks that have tons of, of great teachers in them that are people of color that could be running their own schools. Um, but I, I don't think there's a, at least not, you know, a large-scale effort to put those people in positions to be successful in schools they will run on, on their own. So that's, um, that's the second thing. And then the third thing I would say is really about authorizer policy. So if somebody's data looks bad in year three, there are a lot of reasons why that could be the, could look, why the data could look bad. Um, it could be 
that the school is horrid and does need to be closed. It could be that the school is on the uptick and figuring out a very difficult uh, uh, mix of kids and instruction and needs more time and support. Um, and five years might not be enough time to make that decision, you know. Um, and the leader might not have access to the sort of consulting services that help you get out of that hole, right, that help you spin the flywheel up on a school so it's actually like uh, 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 getting better, faster over time. Um, and I think from the authorizer standpoint and from the, like, strategy support standpoint, we could very easily as a movement be more organized about how we avail those services to people who want to start their own schools and, you know, specifically leaders of color who want to start their own schools too. My guest today has been Darrell Bradford, Executive Vice President of 50CAN. You can find his article, Strengthening the Roots of the Charter School Movement, in the summer 2018 issue of the journal and online now at educationnext.org. Darrell, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or another platform so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, be sure to check out our archives, where you can find each of the more than 100 episodes we've recorded since 2015. Talk to you next week.